Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of the Micro Moment. I'm John, and today I'm joined by Arun Matthews and Brandon Patton of the company Nerdcore Medical, where they sell board games, posters, and a whole slew of products aimed at teaching people about medicine and the microbial world associated with it. Arun is a hospitalist who received his MD at the Royal College of Surgeons, as well as his fellowship at John Hopkins. Brandon is a professional game design musician, plays the bass, and received his music degree from Western University of Connecticut. Arun, Brandon, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Our favorite thing to do on the show is to show how microbes impact us all the time in unique ways. What is your micro moment? How do you have microbes significantly impacted your life journey? Brandon, do you want to go first? Well, I... I uh... I think that microbes are one of the most stunning things that you can access with pretty simple technology, like just putting a water droplet under a a microscope and seeing something that's totally invisible to the naked eye, I think is, is just amazing. It's paradigm shifting. And, you know, the history of humanity, we didn't even really know about these things until, I don't know, what's, what's the right date? I don't have my medical history for, but. I would say yeah, mid-1800s is when Pasteur started figuring out germ theory. Great. So it hasn't been that long in human civilization. It's been amazing. At my personal moment, I mean, I don't have anything that's specific to microbes. Thankfully, I didn't have a scary run-in with something terrible or anything. But I grew up with a mother who was kind of into alternative medicine and some sort of weird superstitious stuff. And uh, I found somewhat infuriating as I got older, all of these kind of uh, pseudoscience-y things that she would try out on me and and bring around the house and bring me to little various specialists and stuff. And so I kind of rebelled against that and really just wanted to know things that could actually be proven and shown with imaging or something, anything. So that's sort of my microbe moment is just kind of growing up around a lot of pseudoscience. (laughs) (laughs) I love that, Brandon. And I, I loved how you framed it with just kind of appreciating the majesty of these microorganisms. And I'm kind of a medical history nerd myself. And, you know, I'm just fascinated with the fact that we had to figure out germ theory before we could start contemplating how to manage things like infection. So we had to build cognitive models around how these little microorganisms interact with the human body in both positive and negative ways. And I suppose my micro moment occurred really around the appreciation of the former, which is the, you know, while I was doing my international baccalaureate biology course and just really appreciating the majesty of these self-contained organisms. Uh, But then fast forward to my internship in internal medicine and uh, just witnessing the ferocity of how a patient can go from just a small sort of laceration or insult, a break in the skin barrier, and the speed at which something like gram-negative sepsis can overwhelm a human being. I had a patient that underwent a prostate biopsy that in the space of just literally two to three hours, went from being upright, walkie, talkie, 
healthy, joking about, you know, the biopsy to I was transferring this patient and intubating this patient and putting the individual on on very powerful vasopressor medications and aggressive antibiotics. So I think that was probably my microbe moment, realizing that um, these are beautiful entities that t- need to be respected because when they choose to, uh, well, when they, it's not about choice really, when they um, you know enter into a space where they can multiply effectively, um, that can result in significant infection and pathology. And the speed at which we respond is also very important in that equation. And so the, uh, I guess that would be my micro moment. I really love both of those answers. Like Brandon, you see videos on say like Instagram all the time, like you said, like pond water and you look inside and it's a whole world with many different organisms just running around. It's a really sight to be seen. And also you had mentioned like pseudoscience. I actually went to a fermentation festival a couple of years back and it's kind of built around that where someone was given a speech on kombucha and that's a fermented tea drink. And, you know, you may like it, may hate it, but at the end, the person said, with kombucha, you don't need to shoot up your kids with who knows what. And I was like, <laughs> but it's kind of funny how microbes can be actually associated with that as well. And I remember having a professor who was talking about a story of how he was watching an infection go up his arm. He was looking at his blood vessel and it was red. And over the course of hours, like you said, it was just going up his arm, up his arm, up his arm. And luckily he went to the ER to get it treated correctly. And he had foolishly given himself antibiotics without really testing what it was and it didn't work. And then he went to the hospital where he got it properly treated. I also just recollecting the, the topic of your micro moment, but uh, when I read Microbe Hunters, that old book by, uh, gosh, it's like a hundred years old now, I think, but I think it's from the Roaring Twenties by Paul Cruyff. Have you ever, have you ever heard of this book? No, no, I haven't. It's a breezy mainstream, like adventure story about Louis Pasteur and the people he battled with academically. Oh, wow. it's, it's written definitely for just a general audience and it kind of exaggerates things. It's not like a dry scientific thing, but it really captures the drama and people arguing about, you know, spontaneous generation and all of this stuff and having these fierce academic battles. It's a great book. I love that so much. And I, if I could just pile on the story about Louis Pasteur and the first successful application of the rabies vaccine really should be turned into a film and it could very well be a thriller. I mean, it is uh, edge of your seat stuff because, you know, this kid was going to die and and he had the serum that he had created. And, you know, like we're talking about virion particles and through this triumph of the scientific process, he had this uh, rabies vaccine and he basically you know, through his entire reputation, put it all on the line because he knew that if he didn't try something, this kid would die. And incredibly, it worked. And it's just such an incredible story. And I, so I love that. And I'm going to kind of seek out that book that you mentioned now. <laughs> it's a fun, it's a fun read. It's a quick read. It's a fun read. Yeah. Both sound like great movies that Christopher Nolan can direct. Here, here. <laughs> right, right. Now that, you've, now that he's done Oppenheimer, it's time to move on to Pasteur. Yeah. We actually did an episode recently on uh, the history of penicillin and 
that's actually a really crazy story in itself. And yeah, there's, there's another one like Christopher Nolan. Why aren't you making more microbe movies? Cause that's full of drama. That's itself right. Too. Fleming and his messy desk. <laughs> <laughs> so Arun, can you tell us a little about your journey? How did you take on the quest of colliding medicine with gaming? I love that question. So I would say I've kind of been a gamer all my life. My gaming moment was when my dad showed up with a uh, Commodore 64 PC and said, this is going to change how we do things. And I'm going to use it to like do like books, you know, do our counting and, you know, can you just help me figure it out? And of course, within a week, he's completely forgotten about it. And I realized that this thing can play games. And so all of a sudden that becomes my entire focus, trying to get as many games as possible and play it on the Commodore 64. And of course it had this music chip that was way ahead of its time. And so I just fell in love with the idea of video games and really throughout sort of high school and into med school, I continued sort of playing video games. I had the original PS1 through med school and really started to hone in on this idea that well-designed gaming experiences are also life experiences and that I could walk into a room and more often than not have a, a great conversation about these shared experiences around uh, great moments in video games and that was like something that I felt was really special. And, and uh, when I would go on rounds, I would, you know, try and seek out those types of conversations and as part of, you know, just trying to really connect with people. And after I finished my internal medicine residency, I was drawn to the idea of something called clinical informatics, which is the sort of fusion of medical science with computer science. And I was fortunate enough to do a research fellowship at Johns Hopkins where I could focus on this idea of the application of game layers or gamification into clinical learning models. And that was essentially where I started to kind of think about appreciating all of the incredible things that game designers do, both in the world of tabletop gaming, but also in the world of computer gaming. And if you think about the amount of cognitive load that a, a person has when they are effectively starting a tutorial or starting uh, into the very basics uh, of a brand new game, there is significant cognitive load there. But when you're playing that level, uh, it's just a ton of fun. And, and so how could we take those valuable lessons learned and apply them to you know things that are like traditionally somewhat dry teaching topics and so that that was kind of the initial spark and so i i very clearly remember playing a game called mass effect where my party was kind of battling these alien invaders and i would i would be sending in sort of scout troops to figure out what their strengths and their weaknesses were and I was rounding in the ICU um, at around the same time, and I distinctly recall having a conversation with a, a nursing student about, and the question was, how do you pick the right antibiotic for the right infection? And so I used the analogy of Mass Effect, which was 
we make reasonable judgments based on kind of the information that is put ahead of us. Let's say a patient comes in from a nursing home versus a patient coming in from the community. And if they have signs and symptoms of a pneumonia, well, I know that uh, if they come in from a nursing home, there's a good chance that their microbial flora might be different, stronger, resistant to multiple rounds of antibiotics versus um, someone coming in from the community. And then I test those hypotheses by drawing cultures. And in the interim, I start them on antibiotics based on those hypotheses. And we had this really fun conversation where I was drawing parallels between what I had been gaming the night before, you know, um, in Mass Effect and what we were doing on rounds that particular day. And I guess that was the moment of inception where I was like, there has to be a way to try and capture those cognitive tasks, but in a gaming environment. And I wonder if there's a way to do that. So very long-winded answer, my apologies, <laughs> but that that that's kind of how <laughs> I sort of zero became one in terms of the decision to explore. Yeah, no, trying to make learning fun is a, is a great idea. In high school, I was taking an EMT basic class. So a lot of it was medical terminology and it's fun, but learning it can be very dry at times too. Now, let me ask you, do you Paragon or Renegade? Oh, I'm one of those sad saps that really pushes hard on the Paragon side <laughs> and undoes saves if I feel like I've done it like incorrectly. And so uh, Paragon all the way. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I have to agree with you. Like, I played uh, KOTOR and I tried to go dark side. I just couldn't finish that character. Fascinating little side note, Bioware, which uh, made Baldur's Gate, KOTOR, um, Mass Effect, was actually founded by um, two physicians randomly. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. That's really cool. And another random fact, I had a chance to go visit Bioware Edmonton in Edmonton, Alberta a couple of years ago because I was such a Mass Effect super fan and I had a chance to meet some of the team that made Mass Effect. So weird. That's so cool. So Brandon, I know you're a musician and a game developer. What was your initial reaction to Arun coming to you with this idea? Well, so to answer that, we have to sort of go back to how it all came together. So Arun and his buddy made a card game called Healing Blade. And the idea was it was a fantasy battle and one side was bacteria and the other side was antibiotics. And Arun, you can talk more about that because I wasn't involved yet. But somehow, and do you even know Arun? Somehow an article got written about that game. Yeah, yeah. How did that even come to pass? Do you remember? That was related to, I think we were at the American Medical Student Association convention and it was related to that. So someone maybe came by and you yeah. talked to them and they were like, oh, great, I'll turn this into an article. Correct. Okay, so I'm unaware of all of this. My wife is getting her doctorate and working, um, doing bench science, and she ha she gets various newsletters. She gets the AMSA newsletter uh, in her inbox and sees this little article about Arun's game and is like, oh, Brandon's going to love this. Because at the time, I was collecting games about science. There weren't that many like tabletop physical games uh with a science theme and uh, i wanted to start collecting them now there's so many it's not really possible to collect them all and so she just forwarded it to me and i got excited i got so excited i found your email somehow maybe it was in the article i can't remember 
And I wrote you like this huge email, right? It was like, it was so impressive. It took like 20 minutes to read or something like that. Yeah. Multiple pages of sort of reflections, observations. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that I know now not to do that. But back then I wasn't aware, like your first email shouldn't be one because that could be scary. Like, oh, this guy, I don't even know him. And is he expecting me to spend 20 minutes reading his email? We were completely enamored for the record. (laughs) (laughs) But the other funny thing about it was back then he was calling their project Nerdcore Learning. And I think my opening was, hey, I saw your Nerdcore Learning game. I play in this band. We sort of coined the term nerdcore in the music world. And I think Arun actually got a little nervous. He was like, oh, I don't, I hope I'm not, you know, none of us know the legal (laughs) implications of this. I mean, there really isn't any problem, but I think he was like extra nice to me because he was like, "Uh oh, maybe I stepped on someone else's brand name here or something like that. It was really funny. Okay. So, so then I wrote him this long email, man, you had even gotten you, you had found somebody to try and port the game into a video game version of it as well at that time. And so I was able to try and interact with the video game version and the card game. And part of what I, I said to him was, this is an awesome idea. Just the description of it has got me super excited and a lot of other people excited. And then I was like, but the implementation of it (laughs) has some issues. So (laughs) if you ever want to like try a second version where it's a little more functional as a game, it's more fair, it's more balanced, we could turn some knobs and pull some levers and even it out a little bit. You are very kind, Brandon. The simple fact is the first iteration of the game was just hot garbage. Like, it's, I mean, it looked beautiful. We, we really went out of our way to what we thought hire some great artists and really try and capture sort of that Dungeons and Dragons, Lord of the Rings-esque feel and really got tied up with the world building. But to Brandon's point, the mechanics of the first game, which we called Healing Blade, were just awful. And it, it wasn't that it was awful. It was that you made everything and then you just published it. It didn't go through a series of usually you you yes, get some people that's to say entirely fair, right? Try and break the game. And you're like, oh, I if I every time I play this card, I win. You're like, yeah, that doesn't seem quite right. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. You just didn't go through that extra process. So it wasn't yes. garbage at all. It just was, it was like an awesome proof of concept. And you just needed an extra round of like, you know. 20 people to play the game and some, some, you know, really good gamers to sort of tell you how they would approach it and try and use it to their advantage and discuss whether it was fair and balanced, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Entirely fair. But the idea was so exciting to me and to lots of other people that word just spread about it. We've never really had much of an advertising budget for any of our projects. And, uh, I guess we just hit the sweet spot where you know, everyone was really accustomed with fantasy world building, but not a lot of people had taken it into this space with the uh, antibiotics and the bacteria. And people were just delighted by it, as as was I. Building a game, I assume, is uh, similar to like a book. You have all your fundamentals down in the first draft, but you just have to fine tune everything for a second edition. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of like feverishly writing your draft and then publishing it and not editing mm-hmm. it much. That's all. Well said, yeah. So I will admit, my wife got the bacteria Omicron for me for my birthday. And How nice. I had no idea what it was going to be like, but I felt like it was 
a good hybridization between medicine and fantasy. Like looking at the images, and I was actually really surprised the detailed backstories that you have for the different antibiotics. And I'm like, wow, this really works. And I, I was also really glad that some of the microbes, the way you present them, you know, in real life are maybe opportunistic. Maybe they don't normally hurt people, but in certain situations they do. And you are able to build that within that story frame or in that frame of the world. So I really like that. I appreciate you calling that out because, you know, we've tried to be intentional. It is very tempting to go into this binary sort of like good versus evil, black versus white, you know, blah, blah, blah. But one of the key themes around our work, uh, especially in the world of Soma, is this idea of homeostasis and the idea of balance. And that's why one of our central visual motifs is a yin-yang symbol. And in the kind of opening credits of the uh, book trailer for the Bacteronomicon, we talk about a world where an uneasy peace gets forged between antimicrobials and the microbes. And resistance coming about actually knocks that uh, balance off. And so it's tempting to kind of go down the, the rabbit hole of all bacteria are not good. No, there are pa human pathogenic bacteria, there are opportunistic bacteria, and they're actually very helpful bacteria. But in the spirit of trying to build a narrative and, and respecting what, what makes things interesting and exciting in terms of navigating conflict, we admittedly lean into the human pathogenic bacteria and that conflict between the antimicrobial agents and the, the bacteria themselves. But it needs to be built on a world that's based on the fundamental truth around balance and homeostasis, which as you know, people that are uh, enamored with biology and biologists, we think that's an important platform to be basing our game off. And that kind of leads me into my next question. We've been talking about this game, Healing Blade Defenders of Simona. And it is a fantasy world where you can play as bacteria and attack the inhabitants of Soma, or you can play as the antibiotic defenders. So how did this become your quest? So I'll let uh, Brandon go into kind of the specifics of this asymmetric card battle um, mechanic. But we originally, it was a straight battle between the bacteria and the antibiotics. But the transition from Healing Blade to Defenders of Soma, Brandon developed this ingenious mechanism of having the inhabitants of Soma in the form of villagers be the individuals that whose lives we are playing for. And the, those individuals are representative of the human body and they add characterizations and purpose around where the stakes are for the, the battle itself. I'm actually curious, uh, Brandon, like where you got that idea from and um, what inspired you to kind of adjust the mechanics of the game as a result? The, for, for attacking villagers? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so background for the listener, the um, Healing Blade, the original one was just both players had a set of cards and it, it was a fight between these cards. And then in our subsequent game, in between the fight, are the innocent villagers and the bad guys are attacking the villagers and the good guys are saving them in the sense of the villagers get are getting infections and the the wizards are coming and getting rid of the infections 
I mean, there's there's nothing magical about how that came about. It, it's fairly obvious. I was just trying out different things, trying out different aspects of the gameplay. I'm, I've done several games based on real world things. And usually I start with a big list of the kind of things you could do. So for a while I was goofing around with, you know, should we be talking about respiratory versus skin versus digestive? I had a whole thing about like, like a parachute icon, which meant that, you know, it, you know, it came from the air, you know, and it got too complicated. And, and then I was just trimming things out. My approach is just to throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And that's, that was just one of many versions that I goofed around with when I was in that initial brainstorming period. But I feel like his question was, why did this become your quest? Like, why did you double the, like, we always get ideas. You're sitting around, oh, it'd be so cool if there was a movie about, or, oh, I just had a neat idea for it. But like, you committed to it. You had this idea and you just, you got artwork for it and you put it all together. I mean, you, you didn't just dream up a, you know, as a sort of a, an idea and not act on it. You really, you really doubled down on it. Why is that? What made you want to do that? I love that. I think I was compelled by two white spaces. One was the opportunity to go from microbiology and therapeutics tables, which is the sort of the traditional way that you memorize which antibiotics are active against which species of bacteria. So that felt interesting to try and innovate in that educational space. And then the other white space was a world building and learning through metaphor. So as we started to say, okay, well, you know, should we take the microbiology made ridiculously simple approach, which is, you know, we'll dress up these single cellular organisms a little bit, but they're still fundamentally kind of look like a little paramecium and add characters to it? Or do we just whole hog say this bacteria is in our world, this hulking beast uh, and this antibiotic instead of just a, you know, a xenobiotic chemical structure that is active against phospholipid membranes? No, let's, that is a living, breathing person with a backstory. And so we decided to take the much more sort of aggressive abstract view of world building. And in doing so, that opened up the possibility of creating backstories that are in parallel with some real world facts. And that seemed a lot more interesting and compelling to us and served the original task of innovating into a space of being a slightly more interesting way of learning these things. So our mantra very early on, it was that if one medical student could remember this one additional fact about Clostridioides difficile, because of remembering the visage from our book or our game, then mission accomplished. <laughs> so it truly was about democratizing this technical knowledge. And that felt like a fun task to take on. I think it's interesting how you said how you design these characters based in your own world physically. But if you look at their designs, I feel like they still hold characteristics of the real world microbe or penicillin. There's, I can't think of anything right off the top of my head, but you know, you look at the image and you know, I have microbiology background. I'm like, oh yeah, I can totally see this being a bacteria or yeah, I can see this as an antibiotic. Well, sometimes it was the, for the antibiotics, it'd be like the shape of the molecule might inspire you. 
some of these have long chains, you know, you're like, oh, that's like a sword or the tetracycline has the word cycle in it. So we have like disc and, you know, it has, we have round things because of the shape of the molecule. So some of that's in there, you know, actual physical shape similarities. Like I said, I have the books. I really enjoy looking at all the different images. I do like how hulking cluster realities difficile is. You know, I, I've worked with gut microbiome, and that's always been the model to go into for fighting gut disorders. Is I think that's unintentionally my favorite just because of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love that you say that because when we were having these conversations with our team of artists, you know, I distinctly remember telling the artists, look, Clostridioides difficile. When I contemplate that, when I contemplate my patients having this infection, I feel scared. I want this image to be of something that, you know, triggers that thalassophobia, like that fear of something huge and hulking, because it can be just a mild sort of diarrheal illness, but it can also turn into something horrific like toxic megacolon, which requires this surgery where you basically remove a person's entire colon because it is melting due to the profound infection uh, driven by this bacteria. And so I've had to work through those scenarios with patients and I wanted to capture that feeling of uncertainty and fear in the art. And I hope that's come across. <laughs> I definitely would say so. And I believe you used this as a tool to teach medical students about microbial sensitivity and resistance. How do they respond to it? Are some students more receptive than others to this idea? You know, I'll chime in and then I'm, I'm curious for Brandon's thoughts as well. But the notion of resistance is kind of a subtle game mechanic, or maybe not so subtle because we actually have little cubes that you have to remove. So maybe not the best choice of words. But I love that Brandon built that in because it really does affect the thoughtfulness around when you start off with an infection that you have a pretty good idea around, it allows you to be a steward with your antimicrobial choice. And by being a steward, you are not unnecessarily flaming the fires of resistance that could cause problems down the line. And so I love that that's a game mechanic that we've managed to kind of build into the gameplay. Uh, so that it teaches a little bit of thoughtfulness around just because I have the most powerful antibiotic, I don't necessarily need to use it in this one-sided engagement with a relatively narrow spectrum, uh, with, with a relatively weak bacterium that could be easily managed with a narrow spectrum antibiotic. I was not aware, Brandon, that you had built this mechanic into the game. That's really awesome. Okay, so there was the original Healing Blade, then we had our book, then we redid the game, and it's called Defenders of Soma. One of the main goals for the non-medical people, because you know this is a this is an intersection of people who like games and people who are interested in the medical concepts, the medical science. People who are schooled in this may have already been introduced to some of these topics, but the gamers who just like the theme, who don't have any background in medical science, are not going to know the same sorts of things that people who've gone to school. And so, yeah, I really wanted there to be a very simple lesson of how antibiotic resistance works. It's not a simple concept. It's a complex concept, but the simplified version of it is 
the things you use the most become the least effective over time on the sort of evolutionary arms race between bacteria and antibiotics. And so the, in the game, the person playing the side of the bacteria is trying to win the game by killing things, but that person can't affect resistance. I, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to make this guy resistant. You can't do that. It's the other person who causes the resistance. It's the person who's wielding the medicines. And so the way it works is the penicillin group is dark blue. So you you play penicillin one turn, you play ampicillin another turn, and then all of a sudden you've created resistance because you already played a whole bunch of blue antibiotics. So that's the mechanic by which the things that you overuse cause antibiotic resistance. And I thought it's, it's actually for non-medical people and people who don't have a science background like myself. I thought it was really fascinating and really counterintuitive because I think to the layperson, you're like, oh, medicine, you know, it works, use it. it the, the idea that it has this subtle long-term negative effect over time, I think it's kind of counterintuitive. So this would work. So we shouldn't use it. Like it's, why should we not be using the thing that works so well? Like it, it, it's, it's just counterintuitive. And so just demonstrating that, you know, like, ha ah, I save you. I save. Oh no, now none of my medicines work anymore. That was kind of the goal. I really like how you stated the complexity of antimicrobial resistance. It is very complex. And I think a year or two ago, like I learned a couple of new ways how microbes become resistant. Like I had no idea that they had pumps that they just pumped the antibiotic right out of it instead of like being the antibiotic doing its job. I'm like, wow, there, there's a ton of ways microbes will either gain or evolve to defend themselves against this. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. So what was the hardest part or the biggest boss fight, if you will, to design this game? Well, let me jump in on that because this leads right in what we're talking about, which is classic game. You have these little groupings, these little sets, these little things that interact with each other. All the red ones do this. All the blue ones do this. They move like this, whatever. Chess pieces, you know, the rook moves like this. The, the knight moves like this. From a game design point of view, the challenge of this game is that every single bacteria has a unique interaction with our arsenal of antibiotics. And you, it's really hard to simplify it. So digging into it and learning about it, because I didn't know much about it to start with. So I color-coded them based on their drug classes, right? So it would be like, all the tetracyclines can beat this. And you're like, well, not exactly. This one actually is not indicated. You know, it's like, oh, okay. And even the, the cephalosporins have these weird exceptions to them. You know, don't use a second gen, but you can use a third gen. None of the bacteria would play nice with my plans of just having a nice, simple thing with a color and an icon. And you're like, all right. All these bacteria are susceptible to the same thing and you can play the card. And, and, and that was the conceptual challenge that we had to solve. And in the original version of it, there was just text on the card. It was a list. If you want to beat this, you can use imipenem and, and ceftriaxone or ampicillin or whatever. There's just this long list of drug names. We use the generic names, of course, to try and avoid shilling for pharma. It's just not a good game experience. You've got like, oh, cool. There's this cool monster tacky and I got this powerful thing. And then I got to read this card for 40 seconds to figure out what I'm allowed to. Am I? Wait. Okay. No. Oh, and they're not even alphabetized. Okay, so wait, wait. No, is this card even in this list? Like, you just get slowed down trying to read like this list all of a sudden, right? So that was a real struggle, and it was really annoying. We took on the constraint that we wanted it to be as close to medically accurate as we could, despite all of the simplifications. One thing we did throw out was the distinction between different kinds of afflictions. 
for a given bacteria. So we were just like, okay, here's a given bacteria. We're not going to talk about whether it's like inside you or out, outside you or, or, or in your lungs or somewhere else. Like it's, we're just going to say you have this bacteria. So we simplified that. But then from that point on, getting this crazy book, anyone who's looked at an antibiotic guidance book, you know, will know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's just, it, it's just very granular and very specific. And also the way that drugs get approved by the FDA and the, and the way that medical science makes the recommendations based on you know whether there's actually clinical data for it and versus the hypothetical this probably would work but nobody's done a study you know all that stuff it just creates this nightmare of trying <laughs> trying to simplify the game into you know red things beat gram positive and green things beat gram negative it's just not possible to do it so that was that was the struggle but i think we fixed it we came up with like a color and numbering system that was fairly quick so that you could look at it and know within about five seconds whether your spell would work against the monster. So I was wondering if you could tell me, was this game the jumping point for your company, Nerdcore Medical, or did it come about after the success of the game? Love that question. Um, yes, in many ways. This game was really an experiment to see if we could take a concept and work through various iterations of it to something potentially saleable. And when we got the feedback that we did, even in the early phase of the game, which we have established was uh, really in need of a great deal of assistance, there was enough feedback regarding the art, the world building, the idea, the concept of learning through metaphor, that we turned to ourselves and we were just like, you know, this is pretty cool. And I wonder if we should keep at it. And so while working with Brandon to iterate through sort of better versions of this particular game, we had a, a second game concept that we were tinkering around with around the notion of diagnosis and working through the probabilities of a differential diagnosis has always been kind of a really interesting cognitive task for us. And so as clinicians, and so we we wanted to take that idea and mesh it with the idea of a card game. And that was where the, the concept of Occam's razor came into being. So before jumping into that, the short answer to your question is <laughs> yes, because of the feedback we got from the first game, we decided that we would sort of keep going until people told us not to. And that that's really why Nerdcore, originally called Nerdcore Learning, became Nerdcore Medical because we realized we would just primarily focus on games and learning experiences for health sciences students. I actually saw on your website Occam's Razor, and I really like the concept of that. And I was thinking about getting it because my mom was in medicine for a while, various uh, different positions, and she always loved something, something medical. So I feel like that'd be a game she would really enjoy. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly think that um, really most clinical people, you know, develop a, a sense of gathering information, synthesizing it, developing a differential diagnosis. And so, yes, the nice part about Occam's is that with Brandon's help, it was designed to not simply be something that only medical students and or folks in health sciences would have fun with. There's also a component, kind of a pattern matching version of it that doesn't require any sort of prior medical knowledge. So I have the companion book, Bacteria Nomicron, 
which goes into a lot of detail about the playable bacteria and antibiotics. It is great, full of illustration and world building, including the world of Soma, an allegory for the human body, as well as describing the antibiotics and bacteria's abilities, which are set in a fantasy world, but are very accurate to real-world attributes. What was the catalyst for this world building, and how long did it take? I can certainly start. I remember the moment we kind of incepted the idea of the bacteria and alkana. Brandon, I don't know if you recall this, but we were having lunch at a Whole Foods, <laughs> and I think it was in Austin, <laughs> and we got to talking about the art and how I was lamenting that, you know, I love the art, and the most exciting thing about this whole adventure to me was the idea of building a world. And then we kind of bandied around, well, you know, would it even be worthwhile building like a, a monster manual? Because when you make a, a companion monster manual for a very niche within a niche game, <laughs> you're from a business standpoint, you're not really going in the direction of a large market, shall we say. But we both kind of said, well, it would be fun to just, you know, we've got these 70 or so creatures and back antibiotics and the art is gorgeous. And we've created some backstories for some of them. Let's give it a whirl. Let's try and make a monster manual, kind of aspirationally inspired by, you know, the works of D&D and the monster manuals that people would use as part of D&D campaigns. And that's kind of what started the conversation. Brandon, I don't know if you recall that, but... I remember lunches <laughs> at the Whole Foods, but yeah, I didn't remember that that was when the conversation happened. Yeah. Yeah, it does remind me of Dungeons and Dragons book. So to be forward, I just started playing Dungeons and Dragons. I'm very new to it. I tried it in high school, but I had a horrible DM and it really put me away from playing the game for a long time. I was trying to have fun and he was very serious and I was like, eh. But I just got into a group of friends that are really into it and I find it very fun. And yeah, I find it very reminiscent of that. That was the idea. I mean, some people have got a little confused thinking that it is actually a game in itself. There aren't any game relevant statistics in the book. It's really more of a kind of a coffee table book in the style of a monster manual kind of book. I think a lot of people buy it as gifts for people who are interested in microbiology or pharmaceuticals. We've had a couple people reach out and say, can I turn this into a game and add stats to it? And I'm like, sure, you know, let us know. We'll offer it as a free download or something. But I don't think people realize what a time commitment <laughs> that is. I think I've had two or three people say, I'll do it for free. I was like, great. And then I like never hear back from them. Yeah, I think that it's a cool concept, you know, to mash things up like that. We're interested in doing more things like that, maybe one with a parasite theme, one with a virus theme. We've been talking about about that sort of thing. And as far as how long did it take, there was a design round. So Raul Gonzalez was the name of the designer who did all the layout for the book. Yes. Incredibly talented designer who at the time lived in Texas. I think he lives in Colorado now. And he was just genius at all the design work. But there was, it's funny to just call it fact checking because the whole thing is like medical metaphors, but still there were intended little things to go in to this sort of spreadsheet of, of different characters. And it drove me up the wall checking it all and get the spelling right and everything because our, the graphic designer was visual and he kept misspelling all of the Latin words and everything. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, and then whenever we do another pass, they're like the misspellings would get back in again. And I was like, no. And so, so we had this, we had this back and forth, back and forth. Kind 
constantly going on. And it was, it just took a lot of passes and a lot of edits to, to finally get it all. And, and that was a great experience for me because I, I turned into like a copy editor in that process. You know, I know several professional copy editors and I'm not at their standard, but they're professionals. They have to be quick. So I was just like, well, I'm going to miss things. So I'm just going to do 10. I'm going to go through this book with a fine tooth comb and then I'm going to do it again. And then I'm going to do it again. And then I'm going to do it. And because I just really didn't want too many errors to sneak in there. And in the end, we had a whole system of symbology for the different kinds of bacteria, like based on their shape. Are they rod shaped? Are they, are they cocci, spherical, or chain, or anything? So two errors like ended up in the final book, I think, because like one of the symbols was like rod shaped when it should have been spherical or something like that. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff like checking like that, like going through every single icon, making sure all the icons are right. So so, yeah, that was actually a cool thing that I didn't catch in the first time because I looked at the book because there's so much in there is you figure out a way to differentiate the different microbes and that's using icons. You can differ from gram positive, gram negative, and the type of form the bacteria is just based off the icons. And I thought that was a really clever idea to do that. I appreciate you calling that out. And I just want to kind of double click on Brandon's being very humble, like the cognitive lift to actually make the bacterionomicon happen all of the science and then layered on top of that is the metaphor and the only way that this thing is powerful is if the metaphor and the science are coherent and rigorous throughout so brandon was responsible for that in my day-to-day your audience is most likely familiar with this concept of the antibiogram, right? Which is this living sort of assessment of bacteria and their various resistances and sensitivities to a particular group of antibiotics. And they, they changes geographically and there's different subspecies, et cetera, et cetera. But in the back of the Bacteronomicon is a reverse engineered, for lack of a better word, antibiogram that Brandon created really from scratch because out of the absolute need to do so to keep everything straight in his head. And when he showed it to me, I'm like, that's incredible. Please put that in the book. And so it is pretty, pretty amazing that that thing exists. It's just a a pure sheer force of will project. And I'm so proud of it and so grateful for, for Brandon's attention to detail in terms of bringing it to life. And of course, Raul's incredible visual panache in terms of, you know, when you look at it and then you look, I don't know what the latest edition of D&D is, but you look at a a monster manual, there's a lot of visual DNA that has been inspired from. Yeah, like parchment backgrounds and framing and and little ornamentation and uh, all of that, all of that stuff. The design language is a love letter to world building and to everything that Gygax created. So grateful for Raul's visual fidelity. Yeah, it is a great hybridization. Like the, the world is so, so much like it's really cool how you took human body parts and then transferred them into lands. And first I, I was looking at, it, I'm like, this is. What is this? And then I'm like, oh, this makes complete sense the way it's worded in the book. Like, I know exactly where this is in the human body. Like invading the Respiro forest is the, a lung condition. <laughs> exactly. So my other co-host of the podcast, Tess, is writing a science fiction book right now and is currently doing some world building. Do you have any advice for people who might be smashing science and science fiction into a new 
fantastical world. Brandon, you want to go first and I'll, I'll tackle it. <laughs> <laughs> a question like that makes me just feel humble because we haven't, I mean, we haven't created a novel. The standards are not quite at that level. Like we strive for coherency and consistency, but we didn't have to be at the standard of like a 300 page book or a trilogy or a, or a, or a chronicles in seven editions sort of thing. So I don't qualify to give anyone advice on world building of that scale. A lot of what we were doing was remapping to a certain extent. So you're like, okay, here's the real world stuff. What would this be in a fantasy world? But Arun had a lot of fun with that. I mean, I, I think Arun and Jeff Axe, who was one of our writers, when there was room for creativity, then you got to come up with something and that was fun. So there's a mixture of remapping things in a conceptual way. But you had some interesting things, like you had a kind of unusual plumbing system on the island. Was that your idea, Arun? Where like the way the water flow worked and... The... I, I No, I do. I do. Um, Jeff, working in tandem, I think with a medical student, I forget if that particular contribution was was a medical student's contribution. But it, yeah, fundamentally, we're a system of tubes, pumps, and valves, and pressure gradients, right? If you think about how blood flows through the, the human body. And so we wanted to capture that metaphor and deceit through SOMA. And actually, we built out a little bit more in a children's book called Tales of Soma. But but yeah, I think the first phase of it, which is the creativity part, is always the funnest part. But the harder part is sticking to those rules because the first phase is developing the rules and developing the rationale for why we believe that, you know, the skin should be called the Great Barrier and and why we believe that the bowels should be referred to as the the caverns of the it's, it's actually the bladder is the caverns of bladera and then the bowels are the bowels of alimentum but once you once you develop those rules as you start creating circumstances for the bacteria and the antibiotics to have conflict and engagements you have to kind of remember those rules and then you start seeing interesting things where you have to impart the rules from one anatomic space to another because sometimes you have side effects and sometimes you have things that you want to impart, let's say a skin rash that is commonly seen with penicillin. You want to have to be able to talk about that in those two spaces. And so that was challenging, if I'm honest with you. And then the other piece of it is in terms of advice, and I think this is where I'd kind of circle back on, I would simply say that instead of being focused on the world building, if you were to focus on conflicts between characters in those spaces and really fleshing those out and then really painting around those conflicts, that may be one approach you could use to continue to build out your world. Because I think that's the beauty of human imagination. The Fundamentally, the thing that draws us to fantastical stories is the hero's journey, is character development, is the relationship building, is the emotions that come from you know navigating through conflict. And then you you paint around those lines with the world around it. And so to Brandon's point, I agree. I don't think we are we really have the credentials to offer any uh, significant advice in terms of novel-esque world building. But I would say a few little short stories that happen to talk about bacteria and uh, antibiotics. Yeah, I like that advice because if you're trying to do both at the same time, you can either get lost or overwhelmed with the stories. If you focus on the characters first... It's kind of like drawing, right? You can focus on an individual or something, and then as 
you finish up, you can add a background or the environment around to really mm-hmm. fill in the picture. Are there any expansions in the works for this game? Well, I would say that um, for the game proper, in its current form, uh, it's not, we're on a second edition, and the edition format has largely been used to update bacteria and antibiotics, optimize rules, and that's that's largely kind of where we're at. We, I think we've gotten to a really nice sort of steady state of uh, feedback from gamers and playtesters, and I think the game stands on its own. The book, interestingly, as Brandon alluded to, we are exploring some additional editions of the book as well. Um, we're currently actively working on something called the Parasitonomicon, which is really primarily focused on human pathogenic parasites and worms and integrating that into our world. I'll let Brandon speak to just the challenges of, of building out uh, an expansion pack that would be compatible with the current iteration of the game. It's beyond my sort of simpleton's description of game design. But originally we had hoped that we might be able to do that, but we then settled in on the idea, no, we have to make this the best possible game and the funnest possible game with the current uh, bacteria and antibiotics that we have. Yeah, I I don't think we'll be able to do any expansions that fit into Defenders of Soma other than very small things. Like for uh, the second edition, we did add some new cards, but I couldn't add very many. And the reason for that is that the math of the game, you know, the bacteria side plays threats and then the other side, you know, hopes to have an answer. And if they don't have an answer three times in a row, they lose the game. So if you start to add diseases that in the medical, I mean, if we stick to this, I mean, you maybe could abstract it more, but if we're, if we're trying to stick to this mostly medically accurate kind of concept, then you're going to end up adding illnesses for which there's only one indicated drug or only two indicated drugs. And so then your deck gets thicker and thicker and there's only one or two cards that will answer that threat. So it just get harder and harder to actually deal with a threat. So maybe you could change the rules and say, okay, once 10 of my people die, then uh, then the game's over. But you just really, it's really unlikely. If you have a deck of 100 cards and, you know, someone gets C. diff and there's only like three things you're allowed to use to treat that, then you have three out of 100 cards that will answer that threat. So the way the game works best is if there's common infections which have a long history of use and then you have your right now that you know you should use one of these three or four drugs as your first line of treatment but people used to use these in the 80s and the 60s and and so you can kind of throw those in if you're desperate if for some reason the shelves are all empty you could go back to chloramphenicol for this you could go to this you know like whatever and that makes the math of the game work better so that idea of play a threat do you have an answer there's a strict math to that so if, if i just start throwing in more cards I could throw them in if they already have a lot of things that are already in the game that could answer them. But if I throw in attackers that just can't be answered, then the game gets kind of unfair. And the more medicines I throw in on the answer side, the worse your probability is of drawing the one you need. So it's it's a little tight right now how it's going. And, and even in the new edition, I you know I think I only added seven new cards. 
even that adds a little more variance and you can have like more lopsided games just from bad luck and stuff like that. Right. Uh, that's a great point. I didn't even think about that because, you know, I was thinking, what about maybe adding viruses? Well, now you need to add antivirals. Oh, yeah. And the, and the viruses are, are don't work. You'd have to design a different game because there's so few antivirals. Right. And there's, there's so few. And also, uh, at the time, I did a little research on this. So forgive me if I'm wrong about this, but it sounded like I mean, most antivirals aren't that effective to begin with. And then there are a few, there's like three or four pet antivirals that are mostly used for all of those viruses. So it's a lot less interesting. You could maybe have like, I don't know, 40 viruses and four medicines. So you would always have the answer or you would never have the answer. It's yeah, the the probabilities are very different. I mean, I I think the way the antibiotics engage with, you know, gram positive or gram negative bacteria, there's a lot of antibiotics. There's a certain amount of redundancy to it. That's what makes the game possible in the way that it's designed. It's a great point. And just to expand on that, the the virus space, it's it's so fascinating. You're exactly right. Many species of virus, not that many antivirals. However, in the world of HIV, that's almost flipped on its head. One, you know, uh, retrovirus. And then many, many different antivirals uh, to form the uh, heart therapies, the highly active antiretroviral therapies. And so that's why they call it the cocktail. Correct. Correct. And so it's a really unique space to kind of explore. And then very similar in the parasitic space, we have maybe a handful of antiparasitic medications and they all kind of work the same way. Um, Similarly, let's just say. And then many species of parasites as well. But the parasites, you know, just have a a special place in my heart, recalling kind of all of the interesting little beasties and creatures uh, from tropical medicine. Draconculus medinensis is, I think, perhaps my favorite, the guinea worm and uh, how it's managed. And in the parasite space, you can really go into the life cycles. And in fact, the life cycles represent, I think, subphases of the creatures so that if you really wanted to, you know, go deep on the bestiary, you could actually talk about sort of the life cycles of each of them and then really kind of expand out your book. And that's something that we may explore in the Parasite Anomicon. Mm. Yeah. Parasites, they can be very complicated in their life cycle. Just look right. at malaria. Right. Like For anyone listening, take a look at the life cycle on the CDC website. It's a very <laughs> complex life cycle. But it works. It works. It, oh my it thrives yes. still. So. <laughs> so I could talk about this game forever. You also have posters. I really like the bacterial ID flowchart, personally. Notebooks, clothing, among other things on your website. Was that always part of your plan? Or are you forever expanding to the wants and needs of your fan base? Brandy, you mind if I take that one? Go for it. That sub-project is called Curative Design, and it actually came from almost a happenstance sort of discovery of this incredible artist named Eleanor Lutz. And at the time, I was really fascinated with data visualization, and I had been following a bunch of artists on Twitter, now referred to as X, I believe. And one of the artists sort of retweeted some of the work of Eleanor Lutz. And she's this fascinating individual that was working through her master's and now PhD in biology, but it was also a visual designer. And 
her website is called tabletopwhale.com. And she creates these gorgeous data visualizations that use GIF imagery. So they, they have a motion component to them. So I kind of fell in love with that art and connected with her via email and said, you know, I would love to uh, work with you to try and create a series of posters where the design brief is very simple. It has to capture some sort of element of high yield medical education, but it has to be visually um, appealing enough that that a med student, nursing student, pharmacy student, you know, health sciences student would be proud to have this hanging on their dormitory wall. And I felt like, you know, you have the design sensibilities to merge those two worlds, gorgeous design plus the intricate knowledge, you know, of health sciences to apply lots of information in a very small space. And she amazingly said yes. And uh, so we started working on this through, I think, the winter of 2015 into 2016, 2017. We ultimately made 20 posters. And just to give you an example of one of them, my favorite one is probably called the working title was called A Baby's First Breath. And if you contemplate what happens in a baby when it takes its first breath outside of the womb, when I was describing sort of some of these key physiologic and anatomic changes that occur to Eleanor, I was using words like, you know, well, there's pressure gradients that switch in the heart, the lungs, um, the liver, and valves sort of shut off as the baby is going from an aquatic environment to an airborne environment. And there's these fascinating one-time changes that occur. And so she's taking that all in and she's like, you know, you're talking about tubes, pumps, valves, pressures. I get the sense of steampunk when you talk about it. And so she fashioned this beautiful steampunk inspired data visualization of the heart, lungs, and uh, all of the explanations as to what occurs physiologically during that transition. And I just adore the thing. And that's what kind of led to us really building out uh, this series of posters called Curative Design. Oh, I didn't realize that. Was that the first one? It wasn't the first one. No, it was, um, let's see. It was near to the first one. I think uh, I'm trying to recall what the first one was, but the final title for the poster you're describing was now just called embryonic heart development and circulation. Thank you. Yes. And we also have another embryology one because, because one of her things that she had done on her website was create an animated swirl. Yes. How to build every, a human. Yeah. Of every, um, all the developmental stages that an embryo goes through. Are there any other side quests on the horizon for NerdCore medical? Yay. <laughs> What do you think, Brandon? What what does the gamescape look like? Our problem is not a lack of ideas. Let's just put it that way. Our problem is a lack of time. Yes. So yeah, I I mean I Arun and I both have, in addition to all the projects that we've communicated with each other, we both have a bunch of things we've we failed to tell the other person about. <laughs> so there's like 20, there's like a list of 20 things that are in various stages of completion. And <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I have a whole bunch of uh, pretty affordable, pretty manageable ideas, like for study aids and card games and stuff. But you can get a little distracted with too many ideas. So you got to pick a lane sometimes and make sure you just finish something. 
I was very close to finalizing a project right before the pandemic started. And then I haven't even returned to it because the pandemic was such a huge uh, interruption, mostly because of childcare realities changing for us during the pandemic. And they're just big children crawling all over me for three years. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll get to some of those, but you know, it's a secret. You'll, you'll see what we release. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, what he said, yes, I would simply add that um, there are some really interesting things. Um, Brandon is also, you know, working on a couple of cool side projects um, that I think have the potential to just be absolutely incredible. So Brandon, how would folks follow you on the old uh, interwebs for updates on? Yeah, it's funny. I don't really have much of a separate web presence for any of this. I have a single Instagram for my mushroom themed board game that I've been working on. That's the one. Which is called Mycology Board Game, but I don't really have a web presence I'll just be on Kickstarter eventually doing things. And Kickstarter has been amazing for us. I mean, as a way to find people, mm-hmm. it's very hard to get the word out. You know, you're in a, a landscape of, of sort of advertising where you're competing with Coca-Cola for people's right. attention. And so you can make something and nobody knows about it. So Kickstarter has been really cool for that for us. Agree. On our, you know, near and far sort of timelines, we are looking at that Parasite Anomicon project. The uh, curative design um, journey has been so cool. And we actually won an award, uh, a data visualization award based on the poster line. And so we're thinking about taking elements of the various different posters and building out another sort of coffee table book called curative design. And then uh, we actually have uh, some, some cool things planned with regards to further world building uh, with Selma. And so I kind of want to just leave it at that as we give ourselves a little bit of breathing room to get our projects in line and start pushing them out the door. So excited and and really grateful for a chance to connect with you just to tell folks about a little bit about our journey. All those sound really exciting. I'd like to play a, a mycology baseboard game. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, I, I hope to kickstart that in uh, probably March of 2024. All right, I'll keep an eye out for it. Super cool. Speaking of keeping an eye out, Brandon and I will be um, running a booth at the Rose City Comic Con in Portland in the next week or two. I think it's the 22nd or 23rd uh, of this month. And so uh, if you're in the area, come by, say hi. We'd love to show you a little bit more about kind of the Bacteronomicon and Defenders of Soma as well. So is there anyone the two of you would like to thank or shout out? Oh, gosh. Well, I think we did a good job of uh, uh, repping uh, Raul Gonzalez's work. Such a rock star. Of course, I'm so grateful to Zeba, um, my wife, and co-conspirator in all things Nerdcore Medical. And uh, Brandon had the chance to co-man a booth with both of my kids um, at ASM. And so that was a ton of fun as well. So I'm I'm grateful to team Matthews for helping me continue to kind of work on this project. Wait, was your son there? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause I was at ASM. I think I talked to him for a little bit. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to give a shout out. Well, first of all, to Raul Gonzalez and 
Eleanor Lutz and Jeff Axt, who helped us along the way with these projects. But also to other people doing interesting things kind of in this space, um, we've made some friends and allies along the way. Yes. Melanie, Melanie Stegman did this really cool game called Immune Defense that was as close to chemically accurate, biologically accurate way of showing how the immune system deals with bacterial threats. Here, here, yes. So Melanie Stegman did a really cool project several years ago molecular jig games i think was her her company we have a friend in holland named arnold bozeman who has been doing uh, a lot of education around infectious disease and just is just an all-around wonderful guy, uh, guy. Who's, who's been a, a friend of ours along the way kind of public health outreach using games to really push forward those conversations yeah big fan yeah, there's a bunch of other doctors who have little side projects where they make card games and stuff. I, you know, I'm gonna get their names wrong, or I should have looked this up in advance. But yeah, there's some cool stuff out there, and it's a fun little space that people are playing. And yeah, those are my shoutouts. <laughs> <laughs> so as we wrap up, where can people find you and Nerdcore Medical? Well, there's nerdcoremedical.com. That's our website and storefront. I can be found on Twitter, now known as X, uh, at Arun Matthews, MD. I heard it called the platform formerly known as Twitter. There it is. <laughs> yeah, those would be my two. And then I, I believe we have a, we do have a Nerdcore Medical Insta as well, where we post sort of updates on some of the projects we're working on as well. Yeah, and we've got, you know, got some of our, our stuff is on Amazon's store. So if you only buy Amazon. And can't be bothered to type in a different web address. We're there too. <laughs> oh, wait, I just thought of two more things I wanted to plug. Do it. All right. Okay. There is a fantastic graphic novel called Medicine, a Graphic History by Jean-Noël Fabiani and Philippe Bercovici. Yes. That is really cool. And then the people at Kurzgesagt, which is also known as, in a nutshell, the main guy who started that made a book called Immune, which is uh, explaining... Uh, immunology to a general audience book that is also fantastic. Those are, those are two more things I want to shout out. Oh, that's right. And while you're mentioning that, I had two quick things as well. <laughs> well, one quick thing, which is I, the School of Thought does this incredible series of, of posters around cognitive biases and logical fallacies. And um, our next two posters are actually the medical versions of cognitive biases and logical fallacies. And we worked with this fantastic uh, artist named Zach. We can sort of send you the links to his stuff. And we're super proud of these posters that that are basically formed after um, nautical sort of old world shipping charts that show you the different logical fallacies and cognitive biases that people often sort of uh, throw out accidentally or maybe intentionally if you're worried about that sort of thing. So um those will be hitting the uh, Nerdcore Medical poster site shortly. Well, that sounds awesome. I can't wait to see them. Right. Thanks for the reminder, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone else, check out everything that Brandon and Arun had mentioned, and we'll be posting it in the show notes in case you forgot. Well, I appreciate the both of you coming on today. Thanks for having us. Hey, thank you so much. We appreciated the chance to share a tale or two. <laughs>